We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Steve Hargadon, the founder and director of the Learning Revolution Project, host of the Future of Education and Reinventing School interview series, and founder and chair of a number of annual worldwide virtual events, including the Global Education Conference and the Library 2.0 series of mini-conferences. He has popularized the idea of unconferences for educators and built one of the first modern social networks for teachers, Classroom 2.0, in 2007. He has supported and encouraged the development of thousands of education-related networks, particularly for professional development. Welcome, Steve. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Me too. So I'd love to hear, how did you get started in education and how did that move into education reform? Share with us a little bit about your journey. Okay. So I grew up largely on the Stanford campus. My dad was dean of admissions at Stanford. He then became chairman of the college board while I was taking my SAT tests and then uh, later became uh, director of admissions at Princeton. So I grew up in a very academic household, or at least a home that was sort of centered on education. Lots of books. I don't think I was really an independent thinker or learner, in part because I felt all the pressure of that. And I, you know, I think it was sort of after college that I discovered the things that really gave me joy in learning. Pretty much I was sort of going along, trying to do the best I could. And I was a B plus A minus student. I was never, you know, that there was, there was never like something that had really grabbed me. So I'm very sensitive to people who kind of are going through the system and don't really feel like they're doing it for their own purposes, but they feel all the social pressure and other reasons for, for doing what they're doing. I kind of escaped my junior year of high school and became an exchange student in Brazil for a year. 
And it was a wonderful experience, but I sort of look back on it as an escape, an escape from sort of the pressure and, and it gave me something unique and interesting and something that really changed my life in a lot of ways. I ran a small computer company. We refurbished personal computers for a number of years and really believed in sort of the quality control movement, total quality control. I loved a guy named W. Edwards Deming. I mean, it was a lot about sort of pushing down to the lowest levels, the capacity to think about production and quality. And I ran an open books company, you know, got sort of featured for progressive management policies, how to read a book program. And, and you know, so really loved what I was doing and hit kind of a brick wall when in the early 2000s, late 1990s, early 2000s, the business climate in the U.S. really changed. It was sort of a dramatic shift away from kind of balancing benevolent interests to almost like a rapacious kind of venture capital sort of a, an environment where you people would come in and buy companies and then clear out lots of employees. And it was a noticeable change in what I was doing. I was doing contract work for Hewlett Packard at the time. And they actually lied to me, the people I was negotiating with and negotiated a contract. And then at the day of signing produced a different contract, but was something really fundamentally flawed with it. And I got really disillusioned. And so I them selling computers and computer licenses and all that kind of, and ended up helping schools take open source software and build computer labs for about a 10th the price of a regular computer lab. So I'd go all over the country to educational technology shows and bring all of these older computers, which would act as terminals. And you'd run this open source software program, the Linux terminal server program. And you had this sort of wonderful environment of like, you could put up 50 computers for, you know, $3,000 and, and have everybody running open office word processing and spreadsheets and everything. And it, and it was really fascinating because I started an interview series at the same time on open source software and education. I said, okay, this is the model, right? The apprenticeship model. You come into the open source community, you start coding, people sort of mentor you, then you become a contributor to the code base. And there's this sort of ethos of participation and openness, which I really liked. So again, it sort of turned out to be this fascinating learning moment where the people who buy computers at schools typically aren't really that interested in the learning associated with the computers. It's coming out of that Linux terminal server project could code. I mean, they were getting jobs uh, right out of high school, coding in Python or working for a company doing tech work. But the schools were sort of insisting that we're going to teach the Microsoft office and they're going to get the certification <laughs> and like, okay, that's not really productive. And those kids really aren't learning anything super valuable. They're just learning how to do office work. And I kept not getting sales. I mean, I, you know, I would present a proposal and it was not getting sales, but at the same time, I was doing this interview series on open source software. So I interviewed Mark Andreessen as one of the interviews. I interviewed all the great open source people. And Mark was the guy who created Mosaic web browser. And uh, Mark and his business partner at the time were starting a company called Ning, N-I-N-G.com. And it was a host your own social networking platform it was built on a lot of these same principles of open source software. And that's when I started Classroom 2.0. And it's weird to think of it now, but at the time, there really was not a good electronic forum for teachers to talk to other teachers. There were some uh, message boards that were, you know, sort of primitive. There were bloggers. There were about a hundred educational bloggers and people would put comments in their blog posts to talk to each other, but there wasn't actually sort of a social networking forum. And this was the MySpace era and people really did not like MySpace and education. They felt it was going to be a terrible influence and. They were very afraid of it and concerned. And so I started Classroom 2.0 and it really took off. And when we had 500 members, we thought we had conquered the world. 
mean, it was just amazing. 500 educators together. And then I started holding a global education conference and we had educators from all over the world connect. And we had people staying up 48 hours, 72 hours just to talk to each other. They were, it was like this, well, it exploded and it felt like the, all this incredible potential. And so that really drew me in. And then I, I took a job with Ning for a period of time. I took a job with uh, Illuminate for a period of time. And it really shifted my career towards thinking about education. But I came from this open education and really the development of the individual within a process where they get mentored and, and grow and change. And then did the futureofeducation.com interview series. And this is where I kind of want to shift gears a little. I did 400 interviews with probably most of the famous people in education at the time including great book authors and thinkers. And by the time I finished the interview series, I, I could tell I had lost my audience, that the thinking was at a level that wasn't really where they wanted to be. And if you're okay with it, I'd love to kind of go into that whole story of levels of, of awareness, but tell me what you'd like to do next. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with ed tech? Tools that assume every student learns the same way at the same pace. I need my technology to do more for me. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum, and that it's proven benefit to all student populations, including English learners and students in special education programs. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results, combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com B for a demo. That's IXL.com B-E. Yes, I would love to go into levels of awareness and hear kind of what happened and where you were and, and why you felt you lost your audience. I'm fascinated by kind of the circuitous route you took back to education from starting there. I, don't, I just don't hear a lot of stories of people who start in education, move into business and entrepreneurship and come back to education and, and find that route. And I remember the open source, like open office and the open source software and the challenge that I ran into because I was running it on my computer at the time. This was like 2003, maybe 2000, 2003 in that realm because I couldn't afford Microsoft Office. And so I was using the open source, which was amazing and it was great, but was challenging for me is that I found it difficult to use because I didn't know how to code. And so not being in education at the time, it's really interesting to hear how it was used to help students learn how to code so that they could build and create the things in it that they wanted to. Whereas me, as someone who didn't know how to code, wasn't going to take the time, honestly, to learn how to code, just like would go out into the forums and be lost. I'm like, okay, I, I don't know how to do that. I guess it's just not going to do this. I'll figure out a different way. <laughs> um, but I kind of forgot about that whole realm of the open source piece that was out there. And the other thing that struck me from what you said, just to share one last thought, and then we'll go back to the levels of awareness, was learning how to do office work and teaching Microsoft Office to learn how to do office work. And my mini story about that was I took keyboarding in high school. And this will reveal my age to listeners who don't see me all the time. But I learned to type on a typewriter. I learned to CC with actual carbon copies, right? I learned to go back and put white out on my letter when I mistyped and actually move it back those spaces and retype over it. And my mom didn't want me to take keyboarding because she told me that it was office work and she didn't want me to be a secretary. 
And there was no reason that I needed to learn how to type unless I was going to be a secretary. Keyboarding, honestly, was the most useful class I took in the four years of high school. <laughs> the thing that I use hours and hours every day now, right? We, we all do. But it's interesting to look at that of, are we teaching office work or are we teaching computer skills? And how deep can we use those tools to teach the skills that could be useful in the future, even though we don't see where that's going to lead now? So all of that to come back to levels of awareness after your 400 interviews and realizing that you had gotten to a place where you were talking about things where you had lost your audience. Yeah, for sure. So I call this the paradox of education first, which is that we have sort of two major narratives around education. One, that it liberates the individual, helps them become more competent and creative and uh, have capacity. And the other is that education exists for the purpose of inculcating certain work skills or beliefs or narratives into the individual. And Plato described this in the Republic, and he talked about something he called the noble lie. And Plato said, we tell a lie, but it's for a noble purpose. And the lie is that people are gold, silver, bronze, or brass. And we have to convince them that they are of one of those calibers so the society will function smoothly. We need workers and we need philosopher kings. We need people who will believe that they're not valuable because then that actually helps get the work done. And then we need people who believe that they're valuable. And in that body of work from Plato, he also described something called the allegory of cave. So we call it Plato's cave. And he said, there's a cave and you have these slaves who are sitting on the floor of the cave who are bound to the floor. They can only face one direction. And they're watching shadows on the wall of the cave. And to them, those shadows are reality. That's the reality of life for them. One of the slaves breaks free and he turns around and he realizes there's a big fire and there are puppeteers who are creating the shadows on that wall. So what people believe is truth is actually a narrative produced by another set of people. And that slave sees that there's an exit to the cave and he goes outside of the cave and he comes to this sort of place where there's reality. And we're not going to get into sort of what Plato was describing there, but the slave then comes back into the cave tries to convince his fellow slaves that there's something more to life than the shadows on the wall, and they beat him up. So I want to parse that out just briefly. So the first level of thinking or awareness is the shadows on the wall. So we live within a reality of whatever those narratives are. And so you had talked about kind of food and health, and there are realities around food and pharmaceuticals and other things that organizations and institutions use to communicate that aren't necessarily true but they're the current narrative. In fact, you could look at almost any kind of large-scale narrative and you'd say, that's not actually what's going on, but it's what we're told. Right? So the narrative of the banks is they help you become financially independent and save money, but that's not actually what banks do, but it's the narrative that we accept because it's easy to communicate and it benefits the people who have the banks. We get in a tricky area here, right? But you know, the narrative of the United States military involvement is that we are supporting and defending democracy around the world. The, the truth is, we typically do things that benefit large-scale corporations and institutions. And a lot of our influence worldwide militarily has nothing to do with democracy. Often we're toppling democratically elected leaders. I know this gets into a tricky area, but you can look at sort of all these institutional areas of our life and you say, the narrative is different than the reality. So the, the first level of thinking is you just accept the existing narratives. The second level of awareness or thinking is that you realize that there are people who are in control of the narratives. And so you want to be that person in control. 
So you have something that goes on. And this narrative has a lot of energy and a lot of money associated with it. So someone will say, I'm, you know, my program is going to revolutionize education or my product is going to dramatically change people's lives or this drug is going to you know, really help people. But in order to move forward, you have to kind of believe that your solution is the only solution. So there's a, a level from sort of benevolent to malevolent in this area, right? Where people just, there's something they really care about, they're passionate about, and they see it as their cause and the thing that they want to promote. But they're often not aware of other causes or other people doing similar kinds of things. So in the education world, you know, I've, I've been in here 20 years now, and there's a hundred years of really rich history of people doing education reform. But a lot of times someone will come and say, oh, no, this is the new solution. And this is going to change everything. And they don't know anything about the previous attempts or what has gone on. But they don't really get rewarded for that level of sort of awareness. The reward is for pushing a particular program or a particular project. And that can be a really good thing, right? Or it can be something that, you know, sort of like the narrative exists from, from my company to make a profit. I know it's not actually true, but that's how we make a profit. And Ivan Illich described this really well in Deschooling Society, right? Which institutions kind of end up perpetuating the problems that they were designed to solve because there's an institutional imperative. The institution has to keep going. The organization has to pay salaries and people are depending on it and they have families. And so you keep doing the thing, even, even if it's not necessarily the best thing. And you convince yourself that it is. The third level of awareness is kind of coming out of the cave and then looking down and seeing, oh, there are all these people doing all this energetic kind of work around different narratives. But, you know, that's, there are actually a lot of them and there's good and there's bad, but it's not necessarily the full truth. So Gandhi or Martin Luther King would sort of fit in this category. Gandhi had this thing called Swaraj, which was in order for Indians to truly independent, they needed to spin their own thread. And there's a famous picture of him with a spinning wheel. And the idea was, don't raise the crops, send them to Britain to get put through the mills and then be made into clothing and then come back and you have to buy the clothing. So you're sort of buying your original value back. So you can actually make your own clothes and it'll be economically independent. And so that sort of level of thinking of not presenting people with a program, but a process for enlightenment or a process for self-development, that's a whole different level of thinking. But it's this idea that I can't really change you from the outside in. If I give you a program, I can, I can make your life better. I can give you comfort. I can help you have time to think about things, but can't really change you but I can help you to change yourself. And that is the first part of that paradox of education, right? Which is the, you know, the actual liberation of the student person becoming a competent thinker and being able to accomplish things that comes from, I believe from understanding that that's a personal individual process. So I'm going to create the conditions for that process, which is what I think Gandhi was doing and others have done. There's no real money or energy at that level. Right. Because if I have a company that comes and wants to sponsor one of my events, I'll give you an example. Okay. So Acer asked me to do a report on technology and education. And I said, absolutely. And they commissioned it. And I said, Hey, you know, I need to be able to actually do some surveys and kind of, I want to tell the truth. Now, absolutely. So I went out to my audience of teachers and librarians and I said, what use of technology has changed your own personal learning? So I want to go from the approach of, you as people in the education world, what technologies have actually changed how you learn and been a benefit to you and produce this really brilliant, beautiful sort of synopsis of how technology can 
can actually really change learning. And I came up with this idea of using the Amish test. I'm not the first to do that, but you know, test the technology against your pedagogical educational goals. And if it, if it helps them, then you adopt it. If it doesn't, you don't. Right. And that's not how a lot of school districts work. They actually you know, have a, oh, we have a, a grant this year. We have bonus. So we're going to spend this money on iPads or something else. And uh, so anyway, I produced the report and I thought it was brilliant. And it took like four months for them to actually release the report. And they did so with great reluctance because I think what they really wanted me to say was technology dramatically improves education and we should be doing everything we can to be putting computers in the hands of every student. So you can see sort of at the, at the higher level of thinking, it doesn't necessarily match the kind of commercial and uh, financial intentions of those organizations, which really drive the economy, sort of keep our consumerist culture going. So I think that's, you know, sort of a short version of as I got further and further into education and, and talked to more and more people who had done good, made good efforts to build different kinds of schools and do different things, they would always end with a question, we're not quite sure why this hasn't spread. You know, we did this great thing, but it, it really didn't catch on. It didn't become the end all. And, and my answer is, well, that's because at that second level, that level of energy, it's not really about sort of deep philosophical thinking, again, of, of the process of the system as a whole. It's more, can you run with something that gets your sponsors and, and finances and the like? And so it's really difficult to have that higher level of thinking actually become really pertinent and, and drive change processes. So I call it sort of the red herring of education reform, which is, I don't think the system's really going to reform. I think the system does all kinds of things now unrelated to that, you know, the creation of independence in an individual. And a lot of people are dependent on those things. So there's a, an inertia that makes it really difficult for people to actually really rethink what they're doing. And so it comes along with some catchy thing and people can put their time and energy behind it, but it's not actually going to really change things. So it's a dilemma, you know, and the dilemma is how do we reclaim our rights as learners in a system that really ultimately kind of wants us to be gold, silver, brass, or bronze, that it wants us to be categorized into a system so we will work in, in a regular traditional way. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're still very much in a system that wants to track students, wants to put you, you know, in a flow towards a specific outcome that started in the industrial age. And even before that, where we were, you know, just pushing students through, teaching them what we wanted them to know, and then spitting them out to be workers. And that was kind of the basis of our current education system. And to your point, it's, so difficult to change. It's so huge right now. And it's so necessary for so many people. You know, there's the idea of education existing for students and to develop independent thinking. There's the idea of education existing so that we can share our values and create a way of thinking for our students so that they think like we do. And then also like I I'm in the elementary school space. So there's also education as childcare. Parents just need somewhere to send their kids. And a lot of times for a lot of parents, that somewhere is more important than what they're getting or what the ideals of what they would like to have, because this is a thing that they need to have. And you know, looking at all of those pieces, what collective changes really need to be made for large-scale reform to happen? And just adding on to that question, that idea, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. There was a huge and still is a huge opportunity for education change. Education 
literally changed overnight for millions of students, but also millions of students got left behind and didn't have education during that time. So how do we make that next big shift, change education, I guess, decide where we want education to go? I was going to say change education towards where we want it to go, but where do we want it to go? Is it independent thinkers and people who can really function well in the society and the world that's coming? Or is it the values of our culture and imparting the history and knowledge and collective citizenship of, in our case, the United States, but in whatever country you're being educated in and indoctrinated into those values? Well, so in part, you've described the dilemma. I can't imagine enough agreement to do a voluntary change, right, where everybody would say, oh, this is the next thing we need to do. The comparison I like to use is the food industry, right? So food is a fairly decentralized process. So there are lots of people who provide different kinds of food, everything from groceries to restaurants to packaged food. And it's, it's a very independent, a bottom-up kind of a market. And there's demand. And I go to a Thai restaurant or I go to a Mexican restaurant or I want to go here or I want to go there. I want to buy it at a chain grocery store. I want to buy it at a Whole Foods store, I want to buy at a, an independent grocer, right? So there's this variety of choice and capacity, and we don't have some expectation that everybody's going to eat the same food. But somehow in education, we sort of feel like if there's a solution, it's going to have to be everybody. I can't even imagine sending kids to uh, feeding stations three times a day, all getting identical food, because any parent knows my kid is allergic to peanuts or my child uh, doesn't tolerate this well, or you know, whatever it is, right? There's this a great degree of independence around food that we don't have in education. So I think used to framing education as solving a large-scale problem, but I don't, in fact, think that's actually the case. I mean, in the same way that YouTube probably has done more for actual learning than almost any other technology I can think of, because it created a platform for people to produce content of a huge variety, and then others who would be interested in it would learn from those videos. So I think, I think it's a little bit of a red herring to think we're going to change education. But what I think can do is we can help people to think differently. I don't know what your food journey has been like, but the food movies changed me. I started thinking differently about food. And then I called someone and I said, I want to go to the health food store, but I don't know what to buy. And I don't even know how to cook it. Right. And so somebody helps you kind of figure out, oh, okay, you can eat more healthily if you eat food that's organic, you're going to have fewer chemicals in your blood and that's been proven. And so it's good for your health. And well, how do you actually do that? And, and how do I create a menu? And it's a very in individual process. Now, Whole Foods is kind of a good example as well, right? Because Whole Foods grows out of that and becomes corporatized. So Amazon buys Whole Foods and then all of a sudden, some of the promises that Whole Foods have made around labeling and other kinds of things kind of go away because the moment it gets institutionalized, they're cost to that institutionalization. There are different motivations. There are different imperatives for what takes place. So I think the more interesting question for me is not how do you reform the system, but how do you start creating good secondary narratives? Like, you know, there's an enormous number of people who just go to the grocery store and just buy and don't even think about it. But increasingly, there are people who go and they actually care and they think about it and they, they create demand. And, could we, and can we do the same thing in education? I think we've seen it with the move towards homeschooling during the pandemic. And they say, okay, so there is no one, homeschooling is good, homeschooling is bad, unschooling is good, unschooling is bad, charter schools are good, charter schools are bad, micro schools are good, micro schools are bad. There's a variety of ways in which we can say, does that solution empower the learner? 
Does it give them the capacity to think about taking responsibility for their own learning? And that's my litmus test, which is, is it generative? Does whatever I do to you to help you as a learner help you to generate or regenerate the capacity to do that for others? And so that becomes much more like a Gandhi-like or Martin King-like movement where you say, we're not going to be able to agree on a wholesale change to education. That's kind of tilting at windmills. But we can be an influence for people taking responsibility part of their own education. And that's really at the core of the first narrative. Yeah, to use your analogy, I've learned a lot about food and have gone from a place of eating because I need to eat and eating whatever I wanted to because it tasted good to probably listening to too many Tim Ferriss podcasts and biohacking and figuring out the times of the day that my creativity peaks and that my energy peaks and what types of food I can eat a few hours before that to help support those rhythms and really like feeling good and excited about the food that I was putting into my body. And if I take that analogy and cycle it back to something that you said earlier in the interview when you were talking about growing up in an academic atmosphere and doing really well in school, but not enjoying it versus having a love of learning and being excited about what you were doing. That's kind of where I've come to with food. And if we can do that and get to a place where we're empowering our learners, where they're really excited about the things that they're learning, and they're not just doing it because we tell them that they have to, or if they need a grade, or they're trying to hit a milestone, right? Like I I was one of those students too. I did really well in school. I didn't really particularly care for school. I slept through a lot of classes. I was bored. I wanted to get out as quickly as I could. I didn't really, like I saw the point, but I also didn't see the point of a lot of what I was doing. But I did really well. I got A's and B's, right? I finished college. I got a master's. Like I did all the things. But it wasn't until I moved into the education realm that I started to find what a joy in learning really meant and how we could create that environment for our students. So that's a really, really interesting point. There's a book I love called Wounded by School. Uh-huh. Kristen Olson, I think. And she was in the Harvard education program as a graduate student. And she was going to people whose careers were about learning and interviewed them about what their school experiences had been that had led them to these great careers in learning. And almost all of them said, I actually had to overcome my school experiences to become a good learner. So I started asking people I know, people I know when I go into a store, get my hair cut, and I'd say, what were your school experiences like? And I'm not kidding. A lot of people would start to cry. I would get past the sort of initial first and second questions, and I would say, did you feel like you were a good student? What subjects were harder for you? And there was this wound, this set of, I, I wasn't a good learner. The thing that school taught me was that I wasn't good at school. And again, that's sort of the noble lie, right? It's, you can sort of see that kind of playing out. I asked these kids who were very successful in schools, and I'd say, I give a, actually give a talk at Google's headquarters. So it was a conference going on. It was held at Google's headquarters. I give this talk on the small percentage of kids who actually do really well in school and, and what that says about us. And these kids came up to me afterwards and they said, we're in that top percentage. We're interns at Google, but we weren't scholars. We weren't good learners. We were good at the game of school. Exactly. And it was like this dramatic moment for me. I'm like, tell me about that. And they said, we knew what classes to take. We know teachers. We were smart enough to figure out the system. And then we gamed the system. And so we figured out how to get the grades, and the, but we didn't become scholars. We didn't become great learners of certain things. We became good at the game. So in large part, the school is a game. And there are kids who aren't succeeding, who don't realize it's a game. And they think, oh, I'm defective and I'm bad. You know, I'm not a valuable human being because I've 
I didn't figure out that it was a game. But then the, the sort of the real lesson there is, okay, once you realize that it's a game, and I've done this with lots of parents and kids, once you recognize that it's a game, then you're in control. And you can say, okay, get how the game works. And I can choose whether or not to be successful that way. But you're going to be spending a lot of time in school. Find something you really care about and make that your own. And if there's one book recommendation I, I give, it's uh, Cal Newport's uh, How to Be a High School Superstar. Because he went to kids who were successful in college and said, what was your high school experience like? And they weren't the kids who figured out what to do to get the admissions office to look at them for acceptance in the university. You know, they didn't say, well, I need a, I need an internship here and I need a summer camp here. And I need this, you know, they were the kids who actually found something they loved to do. And it was reflected in those activities so that the actual evidence was showing that they were actually self-engaged. And that's what the schools were looking for, not the faking of the evidence, but the actual being self-engaged. So once you get past sort of the game of school and you can realize that it's a game, then you can say, okay, so now how do we actually make the, the most out of these years in school? And for a lot of kids, it's, hey, you're actually in charge. So what do you really want to do? And let's do a, every three or four months, let's do a plan and, and evaluate the plan. And what books do you want to be reading? And what people do you want to be talking to? And kind of taking control of your own education. The difficult truth of Plato is that we are kind of wired to be followers. So for a lot of people, this is really hard, right? It's really, really difficult to think of being in charge of your own learning. And so it is a one-to-one -one effort where you say, okay, so you know, what can we do in general in the culture to be talking about education differently so that more people are willing to go to that place of, oh, it really makes sense to be the agent of my own life. Yeah, you've both described my experience in school and where I'd like to see education go and teed up my next question. So I had that conversation with my husband a few years ago about the game of school. I was like, well, it was a game. I just figured out the system. Like it, I didn't learn everything that I could have learned. I wasn't a great learner. I wasn't a scholar. I figured out what each teacher was going to have on the test. And I just looked at those things. In one class, I had a professor who would literally give us the page numbers of the things that he was quoting. I didn't necessarily pay attention in class. I never read the book. I wrote down the page numbers that he used in class. And then when it came time to write our paper, I went through and used all the same quotes that he quoted in class and I got an A. I couldn't tell you what any of those things were, what the class was about. What I can tell you is how I gained the system because that's what I learned in that class. And so how do we move from that where students are looking at it as a game and they're figuring out how to game the system, which is one skill that's useful in life but get to that point where education can be that place where they're digging into the things that they're interested in, where they're finding that joy in learning, where they're really intrinsically motivated, engaged. And how can we shift like our, our education schedules and systems to reflect that and support the uniqueness of our students instead of the industrialization of education? I think you could do it on a small scale within your own family or small school. I think the tricky part is believing that you then need to scale it because that's an unsolvable problem. Somehow we have to figure out how to, how to hold this discussion without the idea that, that, that we're going to put a different puppet in front of the fire and that'll be the right one. And that's the one that needs to be <laughs> there, right? Yes. Because there are kids who, like my son, I have three daughters and a, and a son. My daughters loved soccer. They knew what they were doing. They enjoyed it. My son got on the soccer field and he didn't know where he was. Spatially, he couldn't figure it out. But he was brilliant at outdoor stuff and hiking and all of these other things. And so 
we took him to a learning specialist and they said, well, you know, David has these deficiencies. And I'm like, well, okay, kids with these deficiencies, what are they good at? She said, Mr. Hargan, there is no good. These are deficiencies. Who knows what I really did? But I, in my glorified memory, I stood up and said, we're done. My son is not defective. He doesn't match your little box set of boxes. So kids are very, very different and they're going to have different skills and different abilities. And this, just like we have different shaped bodies and different ways that we look, our, our brains are similarly characteristic, you know. I'm a lot like my dad in some ways, and I'm like my mom in some ways, and I, my memory is not great, but I'm really good at analytical thinking and whatever that is. And so as an adult, I find my way and I find things that I want to do. And so can we talk about and understand learning in such a way as to not be looking for, for another system to replace the existing one, but to say, what are the processes that are behind individuals becoming agents of their own learning? How do we promote that? To give you sort of a clue, for me, the answer has been, I'm working with libraries to set up student success centers and saying, okay, so you gather the library staff and you say, what were the best learning experiences you had in your life? And what were the conditions that led to those learning experiences? And they'll tell you and they'll list them up. I'm like, okay, can you create and provide some of those conditions in your library? A caring adult, access to materials, no time pressure, no grades, whatever it is. Oh yeah. Okay. So call it a student success center. Most librarians feel like they're complete out of the conversation of education and they resent it. But the library, the repository of books, this incredible place should be a place where, where we can say, hey, in, in a distributed way, let's create a conversation around learning that isn't around the game of school, but it's actually about lifelong learning. I'm going to go back and I have one last question for you. But you had talked about asking people about their school experiences and the one question that I love to ask everybody that comes on the podcast is if they can share a story that they remember from their elementary school years. So it's so interesting. I thought about this the other day. I don't remember the names of my teachers until fourth grade. So I don't know what was going on, but it was Mrs. Burtness and she loved me. And that was, for whatever reason, that memory exists. She was so kind and so nice. It's like the, the one really strong memory I have of elementary school. I have another memory of getting in a fight with the school bully and being very afraid. I have those kind of memories, but the big memory for me was how much I loved that teacher. And I think, you know, maybe sort of the importance of that is, at least for me, is remembering the influence that we have on other people, right? That, that one-to-one influence. And that always comes up in this conditions of learning exercise. Somebody understood me, they cared about me, they challenged me, they saw potential in me. That's something we have to remember as a significant part of the learning experience. Yeah, our words and our relationships definitely matter. And students remember those long after they remember the class. So how can people get in touch with you, Steve? SteveHargadon.com. Pretty much everything runs out of there. So feel free to go there and there are links to different activities and writings and that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. This is a great conversation. I'm glad. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things?
you need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.